This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Amen. All right, I want to make it just a little bit more intimate in here. Would you guys mind shifting up two rows? Everyone just shift up two rows so our front row can be full and we can, we have illustrations and I want all of you to be able to see all the little teeny tiny illustrations that we've got going on. Thank you for doing that. We are one body. We're a family here. It's okay if we sit close together. I wore deodorant. Your neighbor might not have. Is your neighbor a junior high student? They may not have. Thanks, guys. All right, so here's just a teeny tiny history lesson. And it's really, really interesting. Back before the United States was its own country, its own thing, in 1751... The governors of what was becoming Massachusetts wanted to make a treaty with the Native Americans that were in there at the time to have peace between them. So they called this this treaty meeting. And you have to imagine the people at the meeting. You have all of these like English and Dutch governors. These are the people that are ruling stuff, that are making decisions. You have Indian chiefs or Native American chiefs, to be politically correct. And then you have all these settlers and colonists, and you have all these Native Americans, and they're all here together for peace. And as a part of this, you have the governors making speeches, and you have all kinds of speeches going on. And then kind of the jewel of the day was they had a pastor come up and give a sermon. And this was the great Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards steps up and he says something kind of shocking. He says, he looks at all the Native Americans and he looks at all the Englishmen and the Dutchmen and he says, they come to you in the name of King George, but I am coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And then Jonathan Edwards gives a sermon and he begins with the fall of man and human depravity. And he carries it all the way through to the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus' resurrection and salvation. And he goes even further and he says, he looks at his Native American brothers and sisters and the chiefs that are there and he says, and we have robbed you. We have withheld the gospel from you because the, the gospel and the freedom that comes with the gospel is something that sets you free. And too often, our colonialism Englishmen and the Dutchmen and the governors want to take advantage of you. But the gospel is your only hope. And guess what? There is no difference between you and me. There's no difference between the Native American tribes and the Englishmen and Dutchmen that are here today. The only difference is that we have the gospel of Christ and I'm here to share it with you. And Jonathan Edwards would spend the majority of the rest of his life living in their teepees as a missionary to the Native Americans there. In Massachusetts. And if there's something I'd like you to get out of this little story, it's this. That if we go back 271 years to that day, a sermon 
about the work of Jesus Christ, about the gospel, is exactly the same as it is today. Before the United States ever was, all the points are still the same. Jesus is still glorified. Humanity is still recognized as sinful. If you go back to the earliest creeds of Christianity, you see progressive Christianity, pro-quitter Christianity, they teach that Christianity has changed over time. Yet the, the message of preachers and pastors and evangelists has changed to fit the time period, has changed to fit the circumstances. But if you go back 270 years, the message is the same. And if you go all the way back to the earliest Christian creeds, and you can find the earliest one is between two to seven years after Jesus rose from the grave. Early. 2,000 years old. And that creed itself, you can find it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I received it and I'm delivering it to you as first importance. And he says this, here it is, here's our message. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. And then he goes on to say, and Jesus appeared to 500 others as well. The message has never changed. It has been consistent. If you hear a Bible-based sermon 270 years ago, it's the same as 2,000 years ago, and it's the same as a sermon you might have heard yesterday. It's never changed. It is consistent. Jesus died for our sin. Here's our key verse for tonight. This is worth writing down. It's worth memorizing. It's worth highlighting in your Bible, writing it on a note card, sticking it on your mirror. This is beautiful. And if you only grabbed one thing tonight, despite all the fun illustrations that we're going to do and hopefully a really cool story to wrap it all up with, but if you only grab one thing, this is the verse I hope you grab. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. That's 1 John 4, 9 through 10. If you have your Bibles, open it up, circle it, highlight it, mark the date. In this is the love of God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love. Let's define love here. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. There's a fancy word we'll talk about in a minute. The propitiation for our sin. There's three things I want to talk about tonight. That is, and they're sort of fancy words. The first one is imputed righteousness. The second one is penalty substitution. And the third is spiritual blessings. Whoo! We have fun for tonight. You've probably heard some of these words, maybe for the first time in the video that we watched the last two Wednesdays. And I hope to kind of grab some of those thoughts that may have been a little bit murky and maybe bring some clarity and definition to those tonight. Imputed. Let's think about the word imputed. If you look it up in dictionary.com or you Google it, it's sort of hazy. Try to grab a hold of what it means. So I'd like to give you a few illustrations. What does imputed mean if we're going to talk about imputed righteousness? Think about this. A guy brings a coin into a pawn shop and he wants to find out its worth. And he lays it on the counter, and the pawn shop owner picks it up, and he looks at it and says, well, I, I can't tell you what it is. How much initially, how much would you, would you take for it? And the guy says, eh, maybe 50 bucks, maybe 100 bucks. Maybe the pawn shop owner is honest, 
And he says, you know what? I got a friend who's an expert in coins. Would you, would you be patient enough to wait for him to come? Now, right now, this ignorant person who brought the coin in, he is declaring this coin's worth between 50 and 100 bucks. He is, this is what he has decided he thinks this coin is worth. But they're calling in an expert, someone who has objective knowledge, someone who knows history, someone who understands the meaning of things, and they bring a third party in, and the guy holds it up and says, actually, this coin is incredibly valuable. We actually know the history of this specific coin. It was held by this famous person. It was given out in this certain time. This coin is worth so much more. It's actually worth $8,500. Now, someone has come in, and this coin that this guy had banging around in his closet that grandma collected that he just thought was worth 50 bucks, has now been ascribed value. It has been recognized objectively by someone who is an expert, this coin is actually worth $8,500. They have imputed value on this coin. It is ascribed, it is attributed, this value attributed or ascribed to the coin. Is that starting to make sense a little bit? All right, let me give you another illustration. Suppose... Let's go back in the day of, of lords and ladies and, and masters of entire estates. And imagine that, that there is this master of an estate and he has many servants and he has lots of businesses happening and there's farming and there's all this happening on his massive property. And he dies. But the title of lord of this estate is now imputed to his son who picks up the mantle and now has to continue running things. And when people see him, they call him by his title. This lordship, the mastership, the ownership of this estate has now been imputed, it has been passed from the father to the son. That value, that recognition has moved. So this idea of imputed righteousness has the ability to move. Let's look at a third example. Let's go the other way around. What if, let's say, some years from now, you have a kid, and you're at the store, and your kid steals something. They're the thief. It was their fingerprints that are on it. <clears throat> and they walk out of the store, but the buzzer goes off, and security grabs you and the kid. Who do they hold responsible to pay back what was stolen? You, the parent. Now, the kid was the criminal, but that... Crime is being ascribed to, attributed to, imputed to the parent to correct it, to make it right. Are you following me? So that imputed guilt has been shifted to the parent as being the responsible party. Are you understanding what I mean by imputed? So when we talk about imputed righteousness, we're talking about something kind of huge because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, therefore, this is another one worth circling in your Bible, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to the world around us. He's making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You are not in right standing with him. There is a, a chasm between you and God. His wrath is against you for your sin and your allegiance is to yourself and not to him. You are in, a, in the rebel party against God. Be reconciled. Get right with God is what he's saying. 
We're rebels against God. We are his enemies. We're born into the rebel forces, and we pledge our allegiance to ourselves every time we sin. Because if you're thinking to yourself, wait, 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 how... I was born, there was no time that I said, God, I don't like you, I don't want to serve you. There's no time that I did that. Every time you sin, every time you disobey your parents, every time you cheat, every time you lie, every time you sin in any way, you're saying, I choose me over the creator and ruler who made me. You're waving your flag of allegiance to self in rebellion against God. We have chosen the Lord of our lives, and it's us. We're the masters of our own lives, the captain of our own destinies. And that God would demand our obedience is offensive. How dare he tell me how to live my life? Who does he think he is? And if that's how you feel a little bit when you hear that God is demanding your obedience, that's because you still have a rebellion in your heart. Towards God. All right, I want to call up Elijah and Laney. You guys in there? You guys ready? Give them a drum roll. Come on out. Yes. Lovely, handsome, awesome. Come on down right over here. I'm going to give you guys an illustration. So for our illustration, let's say that the rebel, the colors of the rebel forces are burgundy and black. And Laney, she flies the flag of her people. She is the rebel forces. And further, the wages of sin is death, and everything that she does reflects... You can kind of rub your hands together. Everything she does, everything she touches, reflects her allegiance to her side. Now we have Elijah who's going to represent Jesus over here. He's so holy in his white shirt. Isn't that awesome? And she is wearing her colors burgundy and black. And she is flying the flag. Every time she sins, she's saying, nope, I choose me. And you see right here on top of her head, we have a crown. And this crown represents who she obeys and who her allegiance is to. This is who she serves. She serves herself. And if you also recognize, she's wearing a crown of thorns. This represents the wrath of God. And because she is in rebellion against God, God's wrath is on her. And at death, she will receive his full eternal judgment. That's what the crown of thorns represents. And as long as she wears that crown, she's saying, I am for me. Matthew sixteen seventeen says that God is the one. Peter makes this declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus, you are the son of God. And God says, flesh and blood, no one taught you this but only by the Father in heaven. And so here she is waving her rebel flag and Jesus comes over and he touches her heart. And so she chooses, she sees Jesus for who he is, that he is the son of God, that he is the master of the universe, that he is king and she gives her allegiance to him to serve Jesus. Now, to be with a holy God, you need to realize this. To be with a holy God, y'all are so cute. I'm going to give you some more, more of your sin here. Because God is holy. 
He is other than sin. He is other than the world. He is perfect in every way. Now, the only way that fallen man can be with a holy and perfect God is if she is holy. She has to somehow wipe away her sin the best she can. She has to make her burgundy shirt white, as white as God's. So wipe away your sin. And yet with her sin, with sinful hands, the best that she can do is only make it worse. But what if, what if someday she wakes up and she's feeling particularly good today? She tries to make a really good righteous decision. And so she has something good, right? But once it has come through sinful man, the best that she can do is dark gray. Are you following me? The Bible says that, that our highest goodness, our greatest righteousness is like filthy rags. The best she will ever be able to do is darker gray. And her, the only way she can know God, be with God, not be under his wrath for death and hell is to turn her character, her nature white. But it'll only be with sinful hands. Are you following me so far? So get this. Here's our hope. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We're going to continue this verse. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. Laney, be reconciled to God. Now this is what Jesus does. And it has to be a work of God in her. For our sake, He, Jesus, or God made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So, Take off your crown and shirt for a second. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. So the first thing that's going to happen Jesus, the initiator, the awesome lover of our soul. Excuse me, I want to make that really awkward for a second. I'll let you wash your hands. Imputed righteousness is that he who knew no sin would take her sin on himself. And that's the beauty of this. It's okay if it's not perfect. No, oh, I love your knot. Well done. <laughs> perfect. Her sin is imputed to Christ. Her guilt has now been ascribed, attributed to Jesus. Are you following me? She stole the candy bar and he said, I am responsible. I am the one who will take the guilt. Now, it doesn't end here. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin is imputed to Jesus and then Jesus, there's a double work, imputes his righteousness to us. So that before God, he ascribes us and attributes us with Jesus' righteousness. And don't miss this. In him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about Adam and Eve. Do you all remember what happened to Adam and Eve after they left the garden? Remember they were naked and it was a sign of their shame before God? So what does God do? It says that God took animal skins and clothed them. It was this it was this seed, it was this shadow, it was this type that God would love us so much that he would see our shame and God himself would cover our shame. It's this image right there, right at the beginning of the Bible of what God does for us. And Jesus, standing before God as her sin. Now get this. She now stands before God as perfect, as righteous, as holy. And no, listen now. This is awesome. She stands before God as beloved as Jesus Christ. Are you following that? When God looks out of heaven and says, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that is now ascribed to the sinner and the rebel. That kind of love for his son has been imputed to her. This is huge. Can y'all grasp what God did for us? Out of his great love. Can y'all just sit down for a second? I'll call you back up in a minute. Because we're not done yet. Jesus esteemed us as greater than himself. He came not to be served, but to serve. The creator of the universe, the sovereign king of everything, came to serve us. Now you need to think for a second. Because he is our example. And he is our king. Do you treat others as more significant as yourself? Do you follow in his footsteps to put others over yourself? Philippians 2, 3-5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Having this mind. What mind? Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul explains how Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that he would become a servant even to the point of death. If Jesus could die for you, then you can take the dirty job that someone else doesn't want. Then you can be the one that actually initiates kindness to someone that really doesn't like you. What's going on in your life? Where is that place that you struggle so much to say, I'm going to pick them over me? You actually act as if they are more valuable than you are. That's what Jesus did for us. He ascribed his righteousness to us and carried our sin out of his love for us. Who is your neighbor? That's been asked of Jesus. Who is your neighbor? Who is the one that you're selfless towards? Guess what? It's the person that you would put at the bottom 
of your list. But the penalty for that sin is death. And the penalty of that sin is also the second death, which is eternal punishment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And so her sin, her rebellion, her waving the flag deserves that death. And who is worthy to carry her sin? Who is worthy to stand before God and say, I will take her place? A soldier can die on the battlefield to extend someone's life. But who is worthy to say, I will take their sin? I will pay the price for their sin. I will stand in the gap for their treason against an infinitely good God whose blood is perfect and acceptable. And so we come from imputed righteousness, which I hope you understand clearly now, to another fancy word called penalty substitution. Or in the video they called it penal substitution. But it means penalty. All have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God, just like He covered Adam and Eve and covered their shame. Throughout Scripture, He starts planting these seeds and shadows for us. Maybe one of the biggest ones when it comes to substitution is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Y'all know the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham waits his whole life for a son that God promised him he would have. And then God says, I want you to take your son. I love how he slows down the pacing. I want you to take your son, your only son, the son who you love. And I want you to take him and kill him as a sacrifice. And Abraham's like, what? You don't condone child sacrifices. This isn't your character. But Abraham knew the voice of God. So what did Abraham do? He took his son up the mountain. And in that critical moment, he's stopped by an angel and God provided a ram for the sacrifice. This ram would die in the place of Isaac. There would be a substitution that would happen. And God begins this march of substitution for us. Then he moves on to Mount Sinai. No, no, no. Let's back up before that. The Passover. Remember Egypt? They're coming out of Egypt and God is saying, I'm going to set you free tonight from slavery. This is what you're going to do. I'm going to come through all of Egypt and I'm going to execute the firstborn of every house except those who are obedient. I know this sounds dark, but bear with me. All of those who take a lamb... And they take the blood of the lamb and they paint it on their doorposts. As I come through, I will see that obedience. I will see that that lamb has died for the firstborn in that house. And I will pass over that home and they will be spared. There's a substitution. That lamb dies in the place of that firstborn. It's a substitution. Then God leads them out and he takes them to Sinai and he says, this is how we're going to do this for your sins. Every year, you're going to sacrifice an animal, and this animal will die in your place for your sin. A spotless, perfect lamb. But this is just a type and a shadow of what is to come, because your sin keeps coming back again and again and again. And there's not enough lambs, and they're not perfect enough to ever take away sin. Because no lamb, no other human can ever live up to my standard of perfection, except God himself. Romans 3, 23-26 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. That means made in right standing. Laney is coming into right standing with our Jesus actor of Elijah. She's coming into right standing. There's a reconciliation there through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as propitiation. There's that big word again, by His blood, to be received by faith. Propitiation means that God has been appeased, that His justice is met. Full restitution has been made. This was stolen and it was returned. Her sin has been paid for. And so that sin has been, has appeased God's justice. That's what propitiation means. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, his patience. He passed over. Hey, look, there's that phrase again. He passed over, passed over former sins because she's under the blood of Jesus. Passed over the death that she deserved. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier. God is both righteous and he's the one doing the act of bringing righteousness. He is the just and the justifier. Oh, so beautiful. All right, come back up, guys. And Lenny, take your pose. And so we've talked about imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness and imputed sin, but now let's talk about penalty substitution. She deserves death. And yet Jesus, out of his gracious love, has had our sin imputed to him, and he will pay the penalty. He will be her substitute. Y'all can do your thing. He is going to take the wrath of God on himself and pay the penalty for her sin. And he did it through the cross. Are you following me? Now I want you to see this beautiful picture. Not only has his righteousness been imputed to her, her sin has been imputed to him. He holds her obedience as her king. And he carries the wrath of God for her. This is imputed righteousness and this is penalty substitution. He is paying the penalty as her substitute. So that God, his justice is appeased. There's that, that word again, propitiation. This is such a great picture. Her rebellion is laid down. She is under his righteousness. And now she serves her Lord and Savior who did this for her. Jesus loves you so much, men and women of God that he would do this for us. And this message right here, this message is divisive. This is the message that's, that's trying to be thrown out of pulpits. It's trying to be thrown out of the Christian conversation today. I'll give you an example. One of the leading progressive Christians, his name was Michael Gunger. I remember back in the day when he was like not a heretic. In 2017, he said this, that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. Michael Gunger looks at this picture and says, no, this is terrible, this is horrible, that God would need to be appeased by blood. Listen to John Wesley in 1739. Listen to his heart. God breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest Clean his blood availed for me. 
What progressive Christianity is doing is they're trying to throw out the very thing that has the most profound meaning to someone who's had their life saved by him. Oh, the story of the gospel of Jesus' blood is the sweetest story we could ever hear. Because it's everything we hope in, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are free from our sin. We walk in the righteousness of Christ. Are we perfect? Is Lainey going to be perfect for the rest of her life? Absolutely not. But God sees her as the righteousness, as the beloved, as the holy, because of what Jesus did for her. Because of imputed righteousness. And this is our hope for eternity. Not just a hope for heaven. Heaven's the venue. Christ, God himself, is our reward and our joy and our prize that we get to spend eternity with him. Romans 5.8 God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion, waving our flag, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do y'all see the beauty of that? It's one thing to see a whipped dog and feel bad for it and want to take it home and feed it. It's another thing to have a dog that's snarling and biting at you and you choose to care for it. And that was us. We waved the flag of our independence against God. And God said, I choose you and I love you anyway. And I will die for you. You guys can sit down. Thank you, guys. Yeah, give him a hand. I'm going to get my little table here for the next part, too. Our sin is put to death on the cross. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 3.5. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And these things, these are idolatry. These are choosing to worship the idol of self over worshiping the sovereign Lord of the universe. All of these things, every sin is our trying to take the crown back from Jesus and say, nope, I want what I want. I want my way. Every time we sin, we're trying to take that crown back back to ourselves. So I've got a question for you. What in your life needs to die? What sin in your life? What is that area that you need to finally surrender the crown to Him entirely, where He becomes the Lord that sits on the throne of your heart? What is it? What is that thing that needs to be crucified with Christ? I challenge you to begin praying for that, to begin verbally praying, like, Lord, I'm going to give this area of my life to you. This thing I can't seem to break, I can't seem to stop lying or gossiping or whatever that is. I can't be left alone with my phone. What is that? Lord, I want to give this to you. Begin to pray about it. That area needs to die. It needs to be surrendered to Jesus. Now, so we talked about imputed righteousness. We talked about penalty substitution. And this, I hope, blows your mind. The spiritual blessings that God has. You see, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserved punishment and we did not receive it. That's mercy for all those who call on Jesus as their Lord. 
Grace is receiving a gift that we don't don't deserve. That's grace. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve the many gifts that Jesus did for us, but that's His grace. That we were in rebellion against Him and He would give the gift of His Son. But then, I don't even know why, He pours out many, many more gifts on us. More than you think. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I don't know how many there are. You can count more than this, but I've got ten for you tonight that He gives us. Gifts that Jesus bestows on us that we don't deserve. And the first one, and you can probably guess a lot of these, and excuse my sort of corny illustrations, but I hope that they help you. The first one, 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so to illustrate that, I've got my, my baby. Yep. This represents new life. We are born again. There's number one. Can you sit up? Okay, perfect. There you go. There's the baby. New life. Oop, that's awkward. Are you doing the splits? There we go. Hang in there, baby. Man, he looks so dirty and grungy. He needs to go in a washing machine. The next thing that God does, the next gift that he does, is that is Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like dark burgundy. You good? Though your sins are like dark burgundy, they're like scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be made wool. God washes us. This is soap. He washes our sin away. And our, he doesn't just take our sin. He takes our guilt, that stuff that, that messes with us. And we're like, oh, I can't believe I did that. He washes that away. The third, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is, made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. There is peace between us and God. And I like this one. I'm using a bell. Back in the day, if there was a court case and someone was on trial to potentially be put to death, but instead they're exonerated and they're set free, they're, they're exonerated, I don't know what else to use. They're redeemed. They're called innocent and not guilty. They would ring the bells of the city and the town crier would run around the town yelling, He is free! He is free! He is free! And at the cross, whenever... You come to the Lord and you come to Christ and you say, Lord, be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. I believe in you. All of heaven is shouting, she is free. He is free. How great is that? So he gives us righteousness between us and between God. We are justified. We are legally exonerated between us and him. Fourth, This frayed rope represents our freedom. He gives us our freedom. We were, as John 8 says, we were a slave to sin. But when the Son sets us free, we're free indeed. I like how one man puts it. I think his book is called The Four Somethings. I forget what it's called. It doesn't matter. Just get the point. He says that before Adam and Eve sinned, that they were innocent that they could choose not to sin. But then they sinned, and we are just like Laney was in that, that crimson, that, that burgundy and filthiness. We can't not sin. We're bound to sin. 
We're going to sin. We can't choose not to sin. And then grace comes into our lives. And we are restored back to the ability to choose not to sin anymore. And the day is coming when we will be glorified with Him and we will not be able to sin. Sin will be cast away. It will be gone. We will be in the light of His righteousness in love and in perfect glory with Him. And so we are set free so that we can choose to not sin anymore by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're set free. The next one. Oh, I like this one. Let's see if I can find it with my first. Yes. Coming for you next. Is a ring. It's so beautiful. This ring represents being brought into the family of God. God makes you through adoption, his son or his daughter. Romans 8, 14-15 For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. Remember whenever the prodigal son came home? What did the father do? He put a ring on his finger. You're home. This is your family now. We are brought into the family of God as our Father, and we are brothers and sisters of Christ. Then, John 10, 28-29 says, Jesus is speaking, He says, I give to them eternal life, and they will by no means perish forever, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Also, Hebrews says that in Him we have Hope like an anchor. This is my anchor. I'll spread it out so it looks cool. There we go. That's our anchor. So he gives us a hope in eternity. When we die, we have no fear. When we endure suffering in this life, when things are uncertain, we don't know what's going to happen, we have an anchor in all of that. What a beautiful hope. To be absent for the body is to be present with Christ. What a hope. Thank you, Jesus. Our anchor. The next one is a key, and it represents our inheritance. When you become a son of God, you become an heir to heaven, an heir to his kingdom. And he gives us the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 20, 34, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Romans eight sixteen through 17 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So our key. Hey, these are looking kind of nice up here. Isn't this amazing? Let's keep going. Next, another one of my favorites, is that, did you see how big and baggy the shirt was on Lainey? She didn't quite fill out that triple X sanctification or justification that Elijah, that Jesus gave her. It's because we're going to spend the rest of our life growing into that holiness. And that is called sanctification. And I've got here, my hammer and my chisel. Whoop. So I can catch it. Third time's a charm. Got it. 
Sanctification is that God spends the rest of our lives making us more like Jesus. Imagine Michelangelo working on that statue. And he's shaping us from this weird, awkward blob into looking more and more like Jesus Christ. And it is a gift that he would do that for us, making us more like Jesus every day. He chisels us, and that is called sanctification. Then, nope, where'd it go? I don't have my battery. Imagine I have a battery. This transparent battery. He gives us His Holy Spirit to indwell in us. That empowers us. John 14, 16-17 I will ask the Father and He will give you a helper to be with you forever. Yes, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because He neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells within you and will be in you. And it's that Holy Spirit that purifies us. He's the Spirit of holiness. He makes us holy. He's the Spirit in us that pushes the kingdom of God forward. He's the Spirit in us that empowers us to open our mouths and have the right things to say. That's the Holy Spirit. This is where Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the age because Jesus is in us through His Holy Spirit. And so we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally... I thank you, Joel, for contributing your shoe that you refuse to take home. Take your shoe home, Joel, wherever you are. There you are. It's your shoe. Take it home and duct tape it to your head. And this shoe represents that we have purpose. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You, you guys, here's your purpose. Here's your life goal. What am I on earth for? Here you go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What am I on earth for? What is my purpose? You have a purpose. To give glory to God and to let everyone know the gifts that He has given you. If you want to dive into this a little bit further, I give you Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14. It's 11 verses. And see how many of these 10 gifts you can find in those verses. You're going to find a lot of them. And maybe there's some that I even overlooked. Text me and tell me. Back in. The late 80s, 1989, there was a father, and in the 80s, he had a son. His name, uh, the father's name was Dick, and the son's name was Rick, Rick Hoyt. And the son was born with cerebral palsy. And there became a fundraiser at the school for another disabled kid, and Rick asked his father if he could do the run. Now, Rick had no mobility. Legs, arms crippled. And the father said, sure, I'll push you. And so they did this five-mile race where the father every day was pushing a sack of cement in a wheelchair to get ready for it and eventually pushes his son. And they do this five miles together. And the son afterwards said to his dad, 
Dad, when you pushed me, it's like my disability left. I was just free. I was running with you. And so the two of them decided that they were going to do the Ironman triathlon together in 1989. And if you don't know what a triathlon is, that means that you run for a really long time, you swim for a really long time, and you bicycle for a really long time. And the, the, the most fit people in the nation do the Ironman triathlon. And so they agreed together. And so this crippled boy, Rick, sat in a wheelchair as his father pushed him and ran. And he sat in an inflatable boat with a rope tied to his dad, who while everyone else is swimming free, his dad is towing him across the bay. And then he puts him on a basket on his bicycle and pedals him. I may have gotten the order backwards, but it doesn't matter. And not only did they finish the Ironman triathlon, but over the next decades, between 89 In March 2016, they completed 1,130 endurance events, including 72 marathons. Six of them were Ironman triathlons. 32 of them were the Boston Marathon. And they were inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame in 2008. Rick has no strength. He can't run. He can't ride a bike. And he can't swim. But what he does have is he has a father with two traits, incredible endurance and unfathomable love to his son. He loves his son and it's his father who is pedaling and it's his father who is swimming and it's his father who is running. And yet with every race that they finish, Rick with his cerebral palsy is counted as having finished. Every medal, every award, every honoree, the statue that they built to commemorate them is all attributed to Dick and to Rick. Rick finishes and crosses the finish lines with his hands in the air because his father's victory is imputed to him. He receives the accreditation of every race that they finish, every completion, every success. He receives it. Maybe this is why Paul says about us in Romans 8.37 that we are more than conquerors because the one who won the victory puts his victory on us who could do nothing for ourselves. We were weak. We were fallen. We were corrupt. And yet we received the prize. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And here's where the rubber meets the road. Because if God loves us that much, it's time for his people to begin to act a little bit more like Jesus and to begin to love other people and to become selfless and to esteem others as greater than ourselves and to stop being so focused on me to finally take off my crown 
give it to Jesus and start acting like him. It's time that we start throwing down our self-righteousness. We've been talking about the progressive church. And you know what? We have the truth of Scripture. And they are not teaching truth. But that does not give us the right to be prideful and to make fun of them. It gives us every reason to stretch out our arms and love them and beg them to come back to truth. Because that's the love of Christ. Jesus never put someone underfoot. He gave them hard truth. Yes, condemning truth. But it was always in an effort to wake them up to come back to Him out of His great love. This is the Jesus we serve. We have to start loving people, not with condemnation, but with open arms. Two, we have to be clear that we serve Jesus. If people have known you for very long and all they think is that you're a nice girl or a nice guy, you have missed it. You have failed. If they don't know why you are who you are, then you are not being a witness. And you are not giving glory to God in the least. There are plenty of nice people. But I'm telling you, when someone goes, man, you've got a nice energy about you, you've got to be able to open your mouth and say, it's because I serve Jesus. He's made all the difference in my life. There's nothing good in me apart from Him. It has to be clear to the people that we know who we are and why we are who we are. And the third is that we treat people like Jesus treats them, with compassion, constantly extending open hands, with forgiveness. Yes, sometimes they're going to sin against us. And you know what Jesus does? He overlooks that for the sake of their heart. We need to stop being so offended so easily. Because every time that we stiff-arm someone, every time we cut someone out of our lives, we're cutting out our influence and opportunity to give glory to God for them or give glory to God in front of them. Love covers a multitude of sin. And we need to start praying for people all the time. Who have you prayed for lately? Do most of your prayers center around you or do most of your prayers center around those that Jesus loves? So a recap, the message of the gospel has been consistent for 2,000 years. It's never changed. And out of his love and glory, Jesus does a great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. And this is called imputed righteousness. Jesus traded himself for his people and took the punishment that we deserved. And this is called penal substitution or penalty substitution. God gives us an abundance of gifts, of graces that we don't deserve. New life. He removes our sin. He gives us freedom. He gives us right standing with the Father. He adopts us into His family. He gives us security in our salvation. He gives us a heavenly inheritance. He grows us daily to be more like Jesus. He fills us with His Holy Spirit and He gives us purpose. And there's more. Go find them. Send me a text when you find them. So here's your challenges for tonight. Thank you for bearing with me. I know tonight was kind of long, but this was fun if you were if with me at all. Challenge number one, be sacrificial in some area of your life that you don't want to be sacrificial in. That's what makes it a sacrifice. It's because you don't want to do it. Number two, ask the Lord to reveal to you and empower you to put to death one of the idols. One of those things in your life that you keep putting the crown on, that He will reveal it to you and empower you to put it to death. And three, love someone enough to tell them where your hope comes from this week. And here's a bonus. I'm going to stop putting... Scriptures in slides. Because I'd like you to start bringing your Bibles. 
okay, it's, it's going to be a tough transition, but we'll get, we'll get through it. We'll do this thing together. All right. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your unmerited grace. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you for Elijah and Eleni. Lord, I pray that this, this visual just sinks into our hearts, that it just shocks us how much you love us and how much you give us. Lord, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that hasn't called you their Lord and Savior, Lord, draw them. Call them, Lord. Lord, help them to, to find someone, to ask the right questions. Lord, help them to feel comfortable to talk to me or one of the leaders or one of their friends that loves you. Lord, draw them to come to know you. We love you, Heavenly Father, and we give you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, Elevate. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.